everyone, and welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, October 20th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and coming up, week two of Israel's war with Hamas punctuated by President Biden's visit to the region as Congress holds hearings on a new ambassador to Israel. Plus, the latest on the quest for a new House Speaker. China has more nukes than we thought, and there'll be lots more coming up here on this week's edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder, everybody, I know I do this before we get into the guts of every podcast, but want to just encourage you to tell your friends and family members who are looking for a news podcast, an information podcast about what's been going on in Washington, D.C. This is a weekly recap that's just going to tell you everything that's happened. You're going to hear from the, the, the lawmakers. You're going to hear from the newsmakers. You're going to hear from the people who matter. And you're just going to hear what they have to say without me telling you how to interpret or what to think about what they said. That's your job. And so that's what this podcast is all about. I've had lots of my Christian friends and just other folks tell me, where can we go to get a straight news podcast and find out information without being told what to think about it? That, friends, is the DC Debrief. So if that's something you're interested in and you think others would be interested in, please let them know about the podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, now let's get to the debrief for this week. Biden visits Israel as Israel's battle against Hamas stretched into its second week this week. President Biden paid a visit to America's ally on Wednesday, visiting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and meeting with first responders to Hamas's brutal attack two weekends ago. CBN News' Hillary Powell with more on the president's visit, what it accomplished and what it didn't. Poised once more as comforter-in-chief, President Joe Biden embraced Israeli survivors of the Hamas terror attack, along with first responders in Tel Aviv. I come to Israel with a single message. You're not alone. You are not alone. Firm words from the president as he also met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to discuss next steps in the war with Hamas and a potential ground invasion of Gaza. Netanyahu expressed thanks for U.S. support. I've seen your support every day in the depth and breadth of cooperation that we have had since the beginning of this war, a level of cooperation that is truly unprecedented. As part of that support, the U.S. Treasury Department is targeting managers of a Hamas investment portfolio and a Qatar-based financial facilitator with close ties to the Iran regime, a key Hamas commander, and a Gaza-based virtual currency exchange. Iran is Hamas's main sponsor. Because they're ultimately their, um, their actions are being dictated by Iran. And I think uh, Iran was uh, feeling extremely uncomfortable with the idea that Israel and Saudi Arabia could normalize. Uh, I think that would uh, ultimately lead to virtually the entire Arab world, along with Israel, aligned against Iran. Israeli ground forces remain on alert at the Gaza border, ready to move in after Hamas terrorists killed more than 1,300 people 11 days ago. President Biden announced Israel's agreement to resume the flow of humanitarian assistance into Gaza from Egypt, with the understanding it would be subject to inspections. The vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. Today, I asked the Israeli cabinet, who I met with for some time this morning, to agree to the delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, based on the understanding that there will be inspections 
that the aid should go to civilians, not to Hamas. The president was scheduled to meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. That meeting canceled after the hospital explosion, the, the controversial hospital explosion in which uh, Palestinians initially accused uh, Israel of uh, hitting a, a hospital with a missile, killing 500 uh, American officials uh, and the international community now largely in agreement that it was an awry uh, missile launched by Palestinians that fell in the parking lot outside of the hotel, resulting in the death of about 50 people or so. Uh, but still, that hospital, that, that, ho- that incident at the hospital uh, scuttled the second half of the president's visit to Israel. So when we talk about what it didn't accomplish, it didn't allow the president uh, to meet with Abbas and uh, speak to Palestinian leaders. On Thursday night, the president made a rare for him primetime speech from the Oval Office in which he discussed the need for America to engage in helping Israel defend itself and made the case for American involvement in humanitarian aid to Palestinians, as well as continuing to fund and defend Ukraine in their defense against Russian aggression. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. I know these conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going. And the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. So if we don't stop Putin's appetite for power and control in Ukraine, he won't limit himself just to Ukraine. The president did get assurances from Egypt to open up a border crossing there that would allow 20 trucks filled with humanitarian aid to get into Gaza, hopefully to reach with, to reach the citizens that still remain there. Now, there are skeptics who believe Hamas will certainly intercept these trucks and it will never get to the million or so people that are still in Gaza. About a million people have been displaced from their homes during the course of the fighting, but there have obviously been humanitarian concerns about the people, the women and children, uh, citizens, innocent people caught up in the middle of all of this who will not have food, water, medicine, electricity, uh, and the UN and other international bodies have been calling, obviously, for a ceasefire, which is not going to happen um, in this situation in order for for humanitarian aid to get through. But uh, there is this opening, and and, uh, this is something President Biden was pushing the Egyptian president hard for over the course of this week. So a, a, a win for the president there in terms of getting Egypt to acquiesce to this. And uh, Biden said that he would send an urgent funding request to Congress expected to be roughly $100 billion over the next year. He called it a, quote, smart investment. The proposal, which will be unveiled later today on Friday, includes money for Ukraine as well as Israel, Taiwan, and humanitarian aid and border management, according to people familiar with uh, the deliberations. So that is with the, that was the president's week in Israel. CBN News Capitol Hill correspondent Respondent Matt Galka spoke this week with Republican Senator Mark Lankford about what the next steps for the Senate will be in terms of funding Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan. You have been very adamant and vocal about, um, I guess, holding Iran accountable uh, for their continued support, their support in the past of Hamas, Hezbollah. What exactly is it that you want the U.S. to do now? The Biden administration has reduced 
the uh, the enforcement of the sanctions on Iran on their oil sales. So their oil sales have skyrocketed, giving a lot more money to Iran so they can send it to Hezbollah, they can send it to Hamas. That has to stop. We've got to actually enforce the sanctions that are in place. We can't transfer this $6 billion that President Biden did in a hostage exchange uh, with the Iranians and plus $6 billion to them. That's got to be frozen. And we need to make it very clear to Iran that we see what you're doing we see how you're inflaming tensions in the Middle East. They're the ones that are staying in the way of normalization with Israel and with Saudi Arabia and with so many other areas. We want to expose them for what they're doing and to be able to make it very clear on the international stage. The pay to slay policy um, that is uh, from the Palestinian Authority, there's reports that millions of dollars might be going towards some of these terrorists for um, what they've done and and in the name of so-called martyrdom. Is there anything that the, the U.S. can do in response to that? I know there's been the Taylor Force Act in the past and things of that nature. W what can be done to, to stop this pay-to-slave policy? We continue to be able to cut off aid and support in any way uh, to the Palestinian Authority for this pay-to-slave policy, that if someone is a quote-unquote martyr that they've killed an Israeli or, in their sense, killed a Jew, uh, that they're, suddenly their family gets a lot of money and they take care of all their family uh, for a protracted period of time to kind of honor that person uh, for murdering someone. Uh, we've been very clear on that. We've cut off a lot of aid uh, to the West Bank and the Palestinians because of that. We'll continue to be able to press that. The president is expected to uh, make an announce or make an address from the Oval Office tonight, um, pitching the case for providing aid to not only Israel, but also Ukraine. Are you? Do you support tying those two aid packages together? Well, if we're going to tie those two together now, but those two both need to be done. I know there's a lot of controversy on providing aid to Ukraine. Let me make it very clear. Ukraine is currently being attacked by Russia with funding from China and weapons from North Korea and Iran. So when you have Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia together, if the United States just yawns and walks away and says that's no big deal, we're literally turning a new world order over to Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia. That's a bad idea for the entire world. And Senator Lankford also pointing out timing, because remember, there's only about another month until that continuing resolution runs out and we face another government shutdown. So what Senator Lankford was trying to say was, even if they have to get tied together, that's probably because of the deadline they're up against, especially as the Senate is working now and the House is still not working. Israel ambassador confirmation hearing. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee held a hearing on the nomination of Jack Lew to be the next ambassador to Israel this week. Lew served as President Obama's chief of staff as well as his Treasury secretary. He faced some tough questioning from Republicans on the panel who believe his role in crafting the Iran nuclear deal back in 2015 that provided the regime with billions of dollars in sanctions relief in return for Iran agreeing to roll back their nuclear program. Ranking member James Risch, chief among the criticism for that deal and for Lew's role in it. To me, this whole thing's about Iran. And uh, uh, holding hands with Iran under the table doesn't work for me. And uh, I'm deeply disappointed that you issued that license, deeply disappointed that you didn't tell us about it, deeply disappointed that you misled us in uh, July uh, when, you, uh, when we had that meeting. And my time is up, Mr. Chairman. I uh, yield uh, underwhelmed and uh, unpersuaded. During his hearing, Lou said he would work first and foremost to strengthen America's alliance with Israel, especially in light of Hamas's violent attack against them. At this moment, there is no greater mission than to be asked to strengthen the ties between the United States and Israel, to work toward peace in a region 
that has known so much war and destruction. The savage attack demands the condemnation of the world, and President Biden has made clear that the United States stands with Israel in its efforts to defend itself. I will do my utmost to end the horrific attacks by Hamas and ensure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself. And I will spare no effort in working to help American citizens now captive to return home safely. As I mentioned, much of the focus specifically among Republicans on this panel, was on Iran, who is a known funder of Hamas's terrorist activities, as well as Hezbollah and others. Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill are taking action to respond to the Israel-Hamas war, urging the Biden administration to freeze the $6 billion payment it made to Iran through Qatar as part of a prisoner exchange last month. Senator Tim Scott, who's running for president, he's also ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee, and a 20, uh, has released one version of the bill, that would restrict the ability of the Treasury Department and the State Department to loosen sanctions for those Iranian funds. That's according to Politico. It would also say that the Treasury Department must report to Congress on other assets owned by Iran that are currently blocked by U.S. sanctions. And Scott's bill has 21 Republican co-sponsors. Uh, Senator uh, Republican Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Tom Cotton have also uh, unveiled similar legislation over the last week. Now, it is likely that Jack Lew will be confirmed, but uh, Democrats want to fast track his confirmation process, saying that it's vital to have someone in that job right now. Republicans unlikely to go along with that, saying Lew's nomination deserves careful scrutiny and considerations. Israel's second front concerns as Israel continues to bombard Gaza with airstrikes in the south. What about the possibility of the war expanding to the north against Hezbollah? CBN's Chuck Holton is along Israel's northern border and says people there are trying to prepare for that eventuality. We've seen incursion attempts by Hezbollah. We've seen rocket attacks from Hezbollah and response to those attacks from Israel. There have been a lot of jets flying overhead and there's a tremendous presence of Israeli Defense Forces troops, tanks and armor that are massing along this border hoping that the Hezbollah forces don't attack once the IDF goes into Gaza down in the south. So it's very likely that we'll see more activity here on the northern border of Israel in the coming days. And the IDF that we've talked to here say that they are ready for whatever comes. Israel and the campaign trail. The 2024 GOP candidates have been taking different tacks in their comments about the situation in Israel. CBN News chief political analyst David Brody with a look at who is saying what. Each candidate agrees Israelis have the right to defend themselves. They should receive diplomatic support and that President Biden's policies enabled the attack. The Israeli attack was made because we are perceived as being weak and ineffective and with a, le a really weak leader. The Iranians are funding Hamas and Hezbollah and all these groups, and they're funding it in part with money that they've gotten because of the Biden administration's weak policies. The division begins to take shape over how far America should go. Nikki Haley has been the most outspoken in that regard. This is not just an attack on Israel. This is an attack on America because they hate us just as much. And I'll say this to, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, finish them, finish them. Hamas did this. You know Iran's behind it. Finish them. They should have hell to pay for what they've just done. 
Upstart populist Vivek Ramaswamy, however, sees that language as warmongering rhetoric. She's representative of a broader wing of the Republican Party. The Lindsey Graham, John Bolton, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley wing of the party that is trying to bring back an era, a bygone era for now, of disastrous U.S. Middle Eastern engagement, almost as though they're salivating over the opportunity to go to war again. Former Vice President Mike Pence has used the war against Israel to accuse Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, and former President Trump as voices of appeasement, as he calls them, when it comes to foreign conflicts like this. If Mike Pence wants to blame me for what's happening, uh, uh, I think that most people would just laugh at that. What a joke. Leader of the pack, former President Trump, as you might expect, marches to the beat of his own drum. While he has fully supported Israel, Trump's drawn criticism from rivals for calling Hezbollah very smart. And they said, gee, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack from the north because that's the most vulnerable spot. I said, wait a minute. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. The press doesn't like when they say it. He also criticized Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, saying he didn't join forces with Trump to help take out a top Iranian terrorist. I'll never forget that Bibi Netanyahu let us down. That was a very terrible thing. I will say that. That led Mike Pence to pounce. Look at all of this is out of place in this moment. And it's reckless and irresponsible for President, former President Trump or any American leader to send any message other than full and unconditional support to Israel. And as the war in Israel potentially expands, the political fighting inside the GOP will heat up even more, especially if Iran gets involved. At that point, the divisions over what to do next in support of Israel could deepen even further. And while we're talking about the 2024 candidates, some eye-popping general election swing state polling information came out Thursday by Morning Consult and Bloomberg News showing Trump in a solid position against Biden in some important swing states. Now, when you're talking about general election polling, looking at just the general number in the country largely doesn't really do you any good because that's not how we vote. We vote by states. And so it's important to kind of look at some of these states' numbers, again, understanding that the general election is still a very long ways away. In Wisconsin, right now, Donald Trump holds a 46 to 44 advantage over President, Bi over President Biden. That's a plus two. In Pennsylvania, right now, Trump is plus one, 46 to 45 percent. North Carolina, he's up four. 47 to 43. In Arizona, also up four, 47 to 43. In Georgia, up five, 48 to 43 percent. In Michigan, it's a tie, 44 percent for each. And in Nevada, Biden is up three over Trump, the only one of these states in which Joe Biden has a lead over Donald Trump, 46 to 43 percent. In this poll, respondents indicated that they trust Donald Trump more than they do Joe Biden on the economy, despite the fact that Biden has been going around the country trying to promote his economic agenda, which is he's been calling Bidenomics. 49% of voters, essentially half of all voters, said that they trust Trump more on the economy. 35% said they trust Biden more. So the Biden administration says they are not overreacting to any of these numbers and that the general election is still a long ways away. Waiting for Godot. I, I mean, uh, a new speaker. Congressman Jim Jordan experienced two Kevin McCarthy's this week. 
Failing in two separate votes to become speaker, the first by a little less than 20 votes, he lost a few more Republicans on the second vote. On Thursday, the House conference got together for meetings in which many voiced frustration at the situation. Some are pushing for a resolution that would empower the current speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry, emergency powers that would allow the House of Representatives to open their doors again and begin legislating, an idea that some Republicans, like Representative Jen Kiggins, would be in favor of. I think it's the right thing to do. I think I'm frustrated. There's plenty of us in that room that are frustrated. The country's frustrated. We have work to do. We've been saying this for quite a while. We've got our, our appropriations bills that need to get passed. We're now looking at how we're going to be supportive of Israel. Uh, how we're going to condemn Hamas. So we have real work that all Americans want us to do. Congressman Don Bacon, who is one of the roughly 20 or so Republican moderates who have been voting against Jordan, said he's still not sold on that McHenry resolution and that he'd need to have Democrat and that and noted that it would need to have Democratic support in order to pass. I think we, you know, I got mixed feelings. There's pros and cons. There's like most things, there's not a hundred or a zero here. On the good side, we got to move some legislation. We got to support Israel. We need to work on fiscal matters with a CR expiring in 17 November. So I think for our country, we need it, but I think it may delay the speaker's thing. We need, and we just gotta, we gotta come to a conclusion here and get it done. At the end of the meeting, however, Jordan seemed to throw cold water on the possibility of that resolution coming to the floor, essentially saying that idea is dead and that he is staying in the game as the speaker nominee. We made the pitch to um, members on the resolution as a way to lower the temperature and get back to work. Uh, we decided that wasn't where we're going to go. I'm still running for speaker and I plan to go to the floor uh, and get the votes and win this race. But I want to go talk with a, a few of my colleagues, particularly I want to talk with the 20 individuals who voted against me um, so that we can move forward and begin to work for the American people. Jordan announced that he is holding a news conference Friday morning to address the speakership crisis. So by the time you hear this, many of these sound bites Maybe moot, which makes all the late night work I did putting this together not terribly satisfying. <laughs> but it's what we do uh, when we podcast and the news is moving this fluidly. Meanwhile, the war of words between former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the man who began the process to oust him, Matt Gates, reportedly uh, are, are increasing, reportedly yelling at each other during this meeting. McCarthy downplayed the incident, but once again railed at Gates for his motion two weeks ago to vacate the Speaker and kick him out. Remember, it was a crazy eights led by Matt Gates and every single Democrat that put us into this situation. Uh, we've never been in this situation before, but how do you have 4% of your conference remove a speaker when 96% are there? This is why we're here. He had no plan afterwards. Now we have Israel at a war, questions whether Congress can act. Uh, questions where we'd be able to go to select a new speaker. I mean, it's a difficult situation driven by one person for his own personal beliefs, his own animosity towards me, and his concern about what's inside an ethics complaint that was filed before I was even speaker. Meanwhile, the continuing resolution agreed to a few weeks ago runs out in less than a month, with no dialogue as of yet on any spending bills or funding for Israel, as House Republicans search for a solution that no one seems to have come up with yet. China nukes. A new Pentagon report released Thursday shows China is much further along in its nuclear program and has produced more nuclear weapons than was previously thought.
The report says that China has accumulated more than 500 nuclear warheads and is on track to have 1,000 by the year 2030. The report says, quote, over the next decade, the PRC will continue to rapidly modernize, diversify, and expand its nuclear forces. Compared to the PLA's nuclear modernization efforts a decade ago, current efforts dwarf previous attempts in both scale and complexity. Beijing also has built out three new silo fields that can launch nuclear missiles from underground, and they recently finished the construction of 300 new intercontinental ballistic missile systems. This all in the Pentagon report. Now, the Pentagon has been warning of China's rapid nuclear buildup over the years. They released a similar report last year that said Chinese forces were on pace to have 1,500 nuclear weapons within the next 13 years. Now, China is saying that the U.S. is stoking tensions by releasing this report about its nuclear arsenal, and they stress that they still follow a no-first-use policy of firing nuclear weapons. The U.S.'s policy is to only use nuclear weapons in extreme circumstances, but the U.S. has not ever said that they would not have a no first that they would have a no first use policy and the u.s still has far more nuclear weapons than china uh the federation of american scientists says that the u.s has more than three thousand warheads in deployment college sports on capitol hill senate judiciary committee on college sports and personal licensing rights to be specific ncaa chairman charlie baker testified on a number of issues facing college athletics Baker, the former mayor of the former governor of Massachusetts, I should say, has spent a lot of time in D.C. lobbying Congress to get more involved in helping college sports regulate how college athletes can be compensated for their names and likenesses. There are some issues college sports face that we, the NCAA, cannot address on our own. Our new NIL bylaw proposal requires student athletes to disclose certain information to their schools only and offers incentives to use fair contract terms and reputable agents. We want to partner with Congress to go further and curtail inducements and prevent collectives and other third parties from tampering with students, and we would like to have a national standard where a patchwork of laws, as you pointed out, Senator Blumenthal, currently exists. Schools, conferences, and the NCAA are making changes to the benefits that we provide and to enable enhanced benefits while protecting programs from a one-size-fits-all approach. We support codifying current regulatory guidance into law by granting student-athletes special status that would affirm that they are not employees. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham asked Baker about the push by some to turn college athletes into employees of the schools. If you made people employees, uh, Governor Baker, what would happen to Division II schools? I think it's pretty clear that Division II and Division III schools would get out of the interscholastic collegiate sports business and Can probably just turn listen most of their to what stuff he said. into club sports. And the issue of transgender athletes came up as well, with Republican Josh Hawley asking Baker about testimony from former collegiate swimmer Riley Gaines in which she says she was forced to share a locker room with transgender athlete Mia Thomas. I'm not going to defend what happened in 2022. Um, I wasn't there. I was still governor of the Commonwealth. What I will say is we have very specific rules and standards around the safety and security of all our student athletes. And anyone who hosts one of our national championships has to know, has to accept that they know what they are and then abide by them accordingly. But and, and does that include 
female athletes having to share locker rooms with biological males not being warned or consent do they are they asked for their consent i don't believe that um I don't believe that policy uh, would be the policy we would use today. The NCAA is looking for help in trying to figure out how to navigate paying students who are whose names and likenesses are being used in things like video games and in commercials. And uh, there was one shocking thing revealed um, that uh, the most well-paid college athlete right now is a gymnast. LSU's Olivia Dunn, who uh, one expert on, on the panel said is making seven figures while still in college as a gymnast. Sidney Powell plea deal. An attorney who was in Donald Trump's inner circle in the weeks following the 2020 election and who pushed election conspiracy theories, including her now infamous Kraken, which she said were a group of documents that would prove widespread fraud in the election. Sidney Powell has pleaded guilty in the Georgia election fraud case and will testify against Donald Trump and any other defendants in the case. Powell pleaded guilty to six misdemeanors. In exchange for that guilty plea, she was sentenced to six years of probation. She has to pay a $6,000 fine and $2,700 in restitution to the state of Georgia. This could also have implications for the federal case against Donald Trump by counsel, special counsel Jack Smith by cooperating here in Georgia. She, it could also op- open the door to her testifying in, within special counsel Jack Smith's federal case against Donald Trump, too. So something to watch here over the next few months as Donald Trump spent the week again in a New York courtroom battling New York Attorney General Letitia James as she is going after the Trump, uh, the Trump Foundation uh, for what, for what uh, she says is... Uh, continual misleading uh, investors in and Trump overvaluing uh, the different properties and the different things that uh, that that he owns in order to gain more favorable loans and more favorable business deals. So that tr- that trial continued in its second week here this past week. All right, let's take a look at the closer for this week. And we're going to finish up looking at the IRS's upcoming electronic free file system. Beginning in January, the IRS will allow select taxpayers in 13 states to try out their new pilot electronic free filing system, and they anticipate hundreds of thousands will give it a go. This move comes in opposition to, pardon, this move comes as uh, there have been a number of growing online tax filing companies come come to the surface, like TurboTax, for instance, over the last few years. Those companies have made billions of dollars in providing taxpayers online tools to pay their taxes. Now, if successful, this IRS system could largely put many, if not most, of those companies out of business, and it could change forever how people interact with the IRS. Now, of course, it should be noted the last time the government tried something this massive, was in the rollout of the healthcare.gov website a few years ago, which was a disaster. And officials say they've learned lessons from that failure. Critics say the IRS's system will only allow people at first to file federal returns. But the IRS does say they are working with some states to integrate state taxes into its online filing system for 2024. But some of the criticism is that, uh, at the start anyway, people will only be able to do their federal taxes through the IRS system. Now, some people will still have to use other means to file state taxes, if that's the case. This is a pilot program. It was funded by the Inflation Reduction Act, and the IRS is still determining which taxpayers will be chosen to participate. I guess the question is, if you were chosen to participate... Would you try it? 
be interesting to see. I think not a lot of people are, are very devoted to their turbo taxes or, or whatever else it is uh, they use. And of course, everybody's still a little burned from healthcare.gov. So uh, we'll see what this rollout looks like once January rolls around. And that will do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief, everyone. Please, again, make sure to tell a friend or a family member about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief.